0: Jazz is one of the most unique forms of music ever invented. It was born on the streets of New Orleans in the late 19th century. The city was a melting pot, blending the rich rhythms of West African music with the harmonies and instruments of Europe. From ragtime, big band, to hard bop and beyond, jazz has always been a varied and ever-changing genre. Throughout its brief yet storied history, many musicians have come and gone, impacting the genre forever. Among these seminal legends are names like Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Charlie Parker, Benny Goodman, Billie Holiday, Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, and John Coltrane. These influential titans ensnared spectators with their often larger-than-life personas and antics, but one musician seemingly stands out from the rest, pianist Thelonious Monk. The word eccentric is overly used to describe Monk, yet his life and career were highly unorthodox. He never enjoyed the affluent career many of his contemporaries shared. There were even times Monk could barely afford to pay rent on his family's New York apartment. A mental illness, suspected to be bipolar disorder, plagued him throughout his life. He also suffered from manic depression. Unlike his peers, the introverted Monk never curated a public image for himself. He never sought the publicity. With a playing style as eccentric and unique as himself, Thelonious Monk helped create a new style of jazz, bebop, before eventually evolving beyond it. His influence on the genre is all-encompassing, impacting players for generations. As modern saxophonist Kamazi Washington once said, If you're a jazz musician, and you think you're not influenced by Thelonious Monk, either you're not a jazz musician, or you are influenced by Thelonious Monk. I'm your host, Forrest Kelly, and here's more than 10 minutes about Thelonious Monk. On October 17th of 1917... Thelonious Sphere Monk was born to his parents Thelonious and Barbara in the small southern town of Rocky Mount, North Carolina. His poorly written birth certificate wrongly gave him the name Thelius. With the South still segregated and Jim Crow laws in effect, the Monk family moved to New York City in either 1922 or 1924. They moved into an apartment on West 63rd Street in the San Juan Hill neighborhood of Manhattan where the young monk would live for most of his life. Thelonius's parents had a tumultuous relationship, and in the 1920s his father, who was known for having a bad temper, moved back to North Carolina, though it's not known why. By 1930, Barbara and her children had lost all contact with him permanently. Thelonius Sr. would pass away in 1963 after spending his last 20 years in a psychiatric hospital. But before his father returned to North Carolina, the young Thelonious remembered his father playing the piano and ukulele in the home. From a young age, Thelonious desired to play the piano. He informally began to play at the age of six. I always did want to play the piano, Monk recalled in 1963. The first piano I saw, I tried to play it. I learned how to read before I took lessons, you know, watching my sister practice her lessons over her shoulder. By the age of eleven Thelonious started taking lessons of his own. As he continued to learn he was drawn to the playing of Fats Waller and the great Duke Ellington. Perhaps his earliest performances in front of a live audience came when he was just fourteen, playing jazz at rent parties in Harlem that were put on so tenants could earn money to pay for rent. And as a young teen he would compete in amateur music contests at the Apollo Theatre. He won so frequently, he was told by management not to come back. Thelonious was an excellent student, specifically skilled in math and science. His scholastic achievements paved the way for him to attend the prestigious Stuyvesant High School in New York. However, Monk was dismayed when he was barred from joining the school's music program on account of him being black. Thelonious dropped out of school when he was only 16 years old opting instead to tour the country with a faith healer, playing the piano. Fast forward to 1941, when Monk was 23 years old. He was hired by drummer Kenny Clark to be the pianist for the house band at Minton's Playhouse, a jazz club in Harlem. It was here that Monk would meet and perform with saxophonist Charlie Bird Parker and trumpeter Dizzy Gillespie, known simply as Diz. At the club, these three legendary musicians, along with others such as Bud Powell, Kenny Clark, Max Roach, and Charlie Christian, birthed a new form of jazz. Spawned by their late-night jam sessions came the fast-tempoed, highly experimental and improvisational new style of bebop. Entering into the 1940s, big band jazz, most notable for its large orchestral size, was at the peak of its popularity. However, with the onset of World War II, many of these big bands were being broken up as musicians were being drafted into the military. Bebop, with its much smaller group sizes, was a stark contrast from its predecessor. Bebop was on the rise, and Thelonious Monk was ordained by many as its high priest. Bill Gottlieb, writer for the jazz magazine Downbeat, published an article in 1947 describing when he first saw Thelonious Monk play. Even without his music, which was wonderful, you could recognize his colt from his bebop uniform, goatee, beret, and heavy shell glasses. His were done half in gold." When Gottlieb met Monk sometime later, Monk spoke on the birth of the new style of jazz. Bebop wasn't developed in any deliberate way. For my part, I'll say it was just the style of music I happened to play. "...we all contributed ideas. If my own work had more importance than any others, it's because the piano is the key instrument in music. I think all styles are built around piano developments. I was always at the spot and could keep working on the music. The rest, like Diz and Charlie, came only from time to time at first. Quote. While others like Gillespie and Charlie Parker used Bebop to ascend to stardom, Monk began to move away from the style he helped create. Monk's own son, drummer Thelonious Monk Jr., known professionally as TS Monk, would later reflect on his father and bebop. Quote, Thelonious was much more than a bebopper. In fact, he was no more just a bebopper than Duke Ellington was just a swing band leader. Thelonious was one of the founders of bebop, no doubt about that. But if you listen to his music from that period, you can hear that he was also addressing issues that have become part of modern jazz well beyond bebop. quote. Monk differed stylistically from his peers. Instead of the fast-paced tempo of bebop, he preferred a slower and stuttering tempo. And while Bird and Diz were able to secure record contracts and tour deals from their bebop playing, Monk, whose play was evolving, did not. Unlike them, he would remain largely anonymous as he struggled to gain mainstream popularity. During his time at Minton's, Monk had begun to compose his own pieces of music, most notably was the song Round Midnight. Though he copyrighted his composition in 1943, he would not be the first to record it, unable to do so for several years. In the interim, Monk's friend and fellow pianist Bud Powell suggested to bandleader Cootie Williams that he should record Monk's composition. Williams took the song and added an interlude to the piece. As was standard practice for bandleaders at the time, Williams listed his name and that of a third man as co-composers of Monk's piece. Unfortunately for Monk, this meant he would only receive a third of the royalties for his own composition. In the mid-40s, Monk was hired by the great Coleman Hawkins and worked on several recordings with the master saxophonist. In 1947, Thelonious Monk married Nellie Smith, who he had grown up with in the neighborhood. The reclusive Monk had a close bond with his mother, so when he married Nellie, she moved into Monk's three-bedroom childhood home. That same year, Thelonious made his first recordings under his own name with Blue Note Records. But despite the support of the label's co-founder Alfred Lyon, Monk's sales were poor. A 1949 review from Downbeat magazine of his compositions Mysterioso and Humph characterized his playing as, quote, "...generally bad, but interesting piano." End quote. In 1951, Monk was sitting in a vehicle out front his apartment with Bud Powell and two other men when police pulled up to investigate. Powell had a packet of heroin in his possession and upon the officer's arrival tossed it into the front seat. It landed by Monk's feet. Unlike Powell and others such as Charlie Parker, Monk was not a heroin user, however he took the fall for the drugs. Upon his arrest, Monk's wife Nellie begged him to come clean and admit the drugs weren't his. He refused. Thelonious, his wife pleaded, get yourself out of this trouble. You didn't do anything. But he'd just say, Nellie, I have to walk the streets when I get out. I can't talk. Monk spent 60 days imprisoned at Rikers Island for the offense. Upon his release, the police stripped Monk of his cabaret card a New York City document required of anyone who worked or performed in establishments that served alcohol. Without it, Monk would be unable to work in the city's clubs. With the birth of their son two years prior, the loss of Thelonious's cabaret card was the start of many years of hardship for the Monk family. Nelly coined the term the unyears to refer to this trying time in their lives. Though Monk was unable to perform in most of the clubs in New York City, he was able to find work in some of the black-owned clubs in the outer boroughs. Even still, between that and what he made from recording sessions and touring, it wasn't enough to get by. During this rough patch in their lives, Nelly worked several different jobs to make ends meet, including working as an elevator operator at the Taft Hotel and working at the coffee shop chock full of nuts. Despite the family's financial turmoil, it was during these unyears that Monk began to receive public recognition for his music. In 1955, Monk's record contract was bought out by Riverside Records. Recognizing Monk's unique playing style, the label's owner, Orin Keepnews, wanted to familiarize the general public with Monk by having him record a series of jazz standards. Monk was on board with the idea. The following year, he released Thelonious Monk Plays Duke Ellington, his first album with Riverside. On it, Monk reinterprets eight classic Duke Ellington compositions. He's joined by jazz legends Oscar Pettiford on bass and Kenny Clark on drums. Monk followed it up with another album that same year, The Unique Thelonious Monk, where he reimagined seven more jazz standards. Pettiford would resume his role from the previous album, However, Clark would be replaced by Art Blakey. In his personal life, Monk struggled. He heavily drank, and while he was never known to use heroin, he constantly abused other drugs such as sleeping pills and amphetamines. He also had several episodes relating to an undiagnosed mental illness. Around Christmas of 1956, Monk got into a minor fender bender. When police arrived on the scene and tried to question him, Monk stood blankly, unwilling or unable to communicate. He was transported to Bellevue Hospital in New York City, where he spent three weeks without a diagnosis. Another anecdote of Monk's abnormal behavior comes from one of his former bassists, Al McKibben. One day, Monk made an unannounced visit to McKibben's house and sat himself down at the kitchen table, where he remained silent for the remainder of the day. When night came, Al told Monk that he and his family were going to bed. When they awoke the next morning, they found Monk seated in the same position, where he remained for another day and night, not speaking or eating, just smoking. It was fine with me, Al recalled. It was just Monk being Monk. Despite his erratic behavior and drug use, Monk remained a loving and devoted husband and father. His son T.S. Monk said this of him. Quote, for me, he was a father first, and then he was this Thelonious guy second. He was always there to be daddy. He was always home. He liked home. He liked the neighborhood. End quote. T.S. Monk recalls that his father and mother loved to play the game Yahtzee, and that they'd play for hours. Monk used to take his young son down to the pool hall, where T.S. Monk says his father would run the table. And even though he was young, Thelonius never let his son win. Thelonius showed great care for his young children. Here's T.S. again. Quote: It would be me, my father, and my sister. He had on a wife beater, which is an undershirt, and he was changing diapers. People don't think of Thelonius as Mr. Mom, but I clearly saw him do the Mr. Mom thing big time. End quote. Monk's professional career would begin to trend upwards in 1957 with the return of his vital cabaret card. Though there would be more turmoil to come, Thelonious Monk was about to enter into one of the most prolific points of his jazz career, kicking off on July 4th of 1957 as Monk's quartet began an iconic six-month stay at the Five Spot in Greenwich Village, where he offered a young saxophonist, John Coltrane, $100 a week to come play with him. Monk's story is far too complex and interesting to tell in just one episode. I end Season 1 of 10 Minutes About here. We will begin Season 2 of 10 Minutes About right where we left off. The Season 2 premiere, Thelonious Monk Part 2, will air on Sunday, January 2nd, 2022. Thank you for listening. For 10 Minutes About, I've been your host, Forrest Kelly. And that's all I've got to say for now about Thelonious Monk. I will see you all next season on 10 Minutes About.